We're in a series called Down to Earth, and we've been addressing, the point of the series is to address practical subjects that will help us live a satisfying with God life and live it in real time. <clears throat> one of the most practical subjects <clears throat> that we can talk about, one that, that comes into play every day in a Christ follower's life is prayer. So we took our first look at prayer two weeks ago, and I plan to pick it up again this week. We were going to talk about guidance, prayer and guidance this week, and then yet another week, thinking about and working through the, the steps that will help us be more effective in our prayers. But then the Women of Teen Challenge came last week, and they talked about their lives and the changes that they're experiencing. And as critically important as prayer is, I thought it would help us to pause in the series and think through what it takes for people to change. Every Christian should be able to make change, if you know what I mean. Because the Christian life is ineluctably one of change. Perhaps you're a Christian because your parents were Christians or because you were raised in a Christian home or you want your kids to turn out right or whatever. You, Maybe you're a Christian because you want to go to heaven when you die. But if you don't want to change while you're alive, you're barking up the wrong tree. The Christian life is one of change. Unless you change, this is Jesus speaking, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul describes the Christian life as one of change from faith to faith and from glory to glory. We are to be transformed, which is the verb form of the word that we would say metamorphosis, metamorphosed. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of God's Son. Now, if you're a Christian and you're not already just like Jesus, if you are already just like Jesus, why aren't you up here teaching us? Because we need to hear from you. But if you're not already just like his son, then change is in your future. God intends to keep changing you until you're just like his son. He's making you like Jesus. And that means changes in the way you talk, the way you think, the way you relate to others, what you desire, what you value. One of the biggest problems in the Christian life or in life generally, is that people want their circumstances to change, but they expect to stay the same while that happens out there. They want a better marriage, for example, but they fail to make a deliberate, determined choice to change. They seem to think, it's hard to understand how we could really think this, but we do, seem to think that they will somehow drift into positive change. That's like sitting in a boat on a river above a waterfall, hoping that you'll drift in the opposite direction. Each of the Teen Challenge women we met last week had been desperate for their circumstances to change. And their circumstances have changed. But that change will not last unless they change their thinking, their values, their commitments, their desires. You know, if statistics hold, and statistics at Teen Challenge are great, there's hardly anything like it in any program. But if the statistics hold, one of those women that was standing up here on the platform last week 
will fall back into the thralls of addiction when she gets off the Teen Challenge campus. Staying sober is not the only thing that requires change. Staying Christian does too. It requires progressive changes, one leading to another across the span of a lifetime. We need to be able to embrace the changes. Now, if that's true, we better know what it takes for people to genuinely and lastingly change. Let's say you don't like the shape that you're in, either your geometric shape, which is increasingly pear-like, or your fitness shape, which is lethargic and unhealthy. So you say, I'm gonna go on a diet. And you do, and you lose 20 pounds. You, one, look better, two, feel better, and three, will regain those 20 pounds in a year, and probably 20 more, if your outside shape changes, but your inside shape doesn't. Let me tell you the story of a young woman who worked in a restaurant. She was about 23, 24, when a man about her own age came into the restaurant. Before he left, he had asked her out. It's a pretty bold young guy. That night, and she agreed. So it was a warm summer evening. He took her to the beach, and it was crowded with 20-somethings. Everybody's having fun, listening to music, swimming, all those kinds of things. They got to the beach. He got a cooler out of the trunk she didn't know about. It was filled with beer. Uh, they found a place on the beach. He opened up the cooler, and he had one, and then another, and he shared his beer with the people around him, and whenever anybody else would drink, he would drink. And before long, he was so drunk that he and another guy he had just met wandered off and didn't come back. The girl, who was new to the area, didn't really know a lot of people, had to ask somebody to take her home that she didn't know. That was their first date. It wasn't their last because he came back to the restaurant, apologized profusely, promised it would never happen again, asked her to give him a second chance. Before long, they'd become an item. Not too many months down the road, he asked her to marry him. When she told me about all this and how he phrased the proposal, I was shocked. He said, if you marry me, I will change. I said to her, and you said yes? What were you thinking? If they had come to me to marry them, I would have turned them down, flat. Not going to do it. But she said yes, and she married him. So do you think he changed? No, he kept drinking. Kept staying out all hours of the night. Kept disappointing her for years. See, I know all this because the woman who told me this story many years later was my mother. The man was my dad. He eventually changed, and he changed greatly. But only because in the midst of tragedy, he gave his life in a deliberate and determined way to Jesus Christ. How do people change? How do those women from Teen Challenge who've made a good start continue to change genuinely and lastingly? And how will we? Because we need to change too. There are three elements that must be in place for genuine change to occur and to last. If you're going to change in a way that leads to even better changes and doesn't lead back 
to the bondage of old habits, these three elements must be in place. First, you have to see the benefit that change will bring. You have to think it, feel it, want it, dream it, daydream it. You have to live with a vision of what your life will be. Without that hope, change won't last. We see that throughout the Bible. John presents the vision of being like Jesus. First John chapter 3, some of the great verses in the Bible. And then he adds, everyone who has this hope in him, that is, everyone who lives with this vision, purifies himself just as he is pure. The hope, the vision of a future that hasn't yet materialized draws us into change. The author of Hebrews speaks about how hope anchors us to a future. It keeps us from slipping into self-indulgence and laziness and keeps us diligently pursuing God's promise. Paul writes that we are able to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions while we wait for the blessed hope. In other words, even established habits can be changed when we are possessed by the vision of a better future. I told you a story about my mother when she was in her 20s. More than 40 years later, after my dad died, I suggested she move up here to be near us. Before my dad got sick, he was talking about moving to Coldwater. We drove around one day. He was kind of looking for places he would, he would live after he retired. But after he died, it seemed even more important to me to have my mother near us so that we could look after her. And she thought that was prudent, so we had her up here numerous times, and, and we shopped for houses, looked in one house and another. She found something wrong with every house we looked at. And I eventually came to the conclusion that she didn't really want to move. She didn't want to leave the house where she'd lived for the last 40 years or the church that she knew or the friends that she loved. But, you know, I don't think that was the whole story. I think she had a genuine desire to be near us. Well, I don't know about Karen and me, but near the grandchildren for sure. But she couldn't envision what life here would be like. She had no compelling vision we hadn't painted a sufficiently clear picture of going out to dinner with new friends, of being part of the women's ministry at Lockwood, having dinner over at our house a couple nights a week, or just popping in and out, being, uh, going to the boys' basketball games and tennis matches, uh, having someone nearby who could mow her lawn and take care of things when they broke. She could see what it would be to leave and how much that would cost in terms of change but she couldn't see the benefits. She had no hope, no vision of a life here. Something similar lies at the root of our failure to make changes that lead to Christ-likeness. We haven't seen it. Researchers have found again and again that there's little difference in lifestyle between the average Christian and the average non-Christian. There exists a parity in the percentages from both groups uh, in terms of substance abuse, uh, divorces, unethical behavior, and lots of other things. And how could that be? Is it because Christians don't really want to change? I don't think so. At least that's not the whole story. A real Christian really wants on some level to change, but without a compelling vision of the future, without a living hope, as St. Peter puts it, genuine and lasting change will not happen. And many Christians have no such vision. 
They have the same vision everybody else does. I'm going to make money. I'm going to retire. I'm going to have a nice life. That's not a vision that will lead to the change that's necessary. So let me ask you, do you have a living hope? Do you live with a vision of what your life could be? Do you dream about it, daydream about it, think it, feel it, want it? Can you articulate it in a way that others can see it and see what attracts you to it? If not, that might explain why lasting and positive change has been so elusive. Now, if what I'm saying to you is true, we would expect God to provide us with a vision of what life could be, a vision that inspires hope, a vision we can dream and daydream and think and feel and want. And that's exactly what we find. The Bible is full of it. The Bible imparts hope. The word itself is found more than 170 times in the New International Version. The Bible is a book of hope. It presents a vision of what can be, even what will be. And that's never truer than, than it is in the teaching of Jesus. A, a couple years ago, it occurred to me, in a way that I hadn't seen before, that Jesus in his public teaching was a vision caster. He was constantly casting vision for people. It was the first time I thought of him in that way. I noticed how he re-envisioned God for people whose vision had become distorted. They were envisioning God as a kind of heavenly IRS auditor looking for reasons to make them pay. Jesus showed them a heavenly father looking for reasons and opportunities to bless them. And there's so much more to that, and that's important to our subject, but we're not going to go into that right now. More recently... I noticed that Jesus not only re-envisioned God for people, he also spent time re-envisioning life with God for people. What does it look like to be someone who belongs to the Heavenly Father? What does daily life look like for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? The life Jesus pictured, which he also lived, is compelling, it's desirable, it's hope-inspiring. So a good place to see Jesus' vision of what life with God is like is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. But particularly Matthew 5 verse 20 through chapter 7 verse 12. Because the beginning of the sermon doesn't so much envision the life, but it states who's eligible for it. And the end of the sermon doesn't so much envision the life, but it presents the result of living or not living, as the case may be, such a life. So let me just, this is a tour. We're doing this quick run through, but follow me here. Chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Jesus presents this life. You want to see what this life looks like? It's a life free from the terrible burden of anger. Anger is a terrible burden to bear. It's like carrying a heavy wire basket full of knives with points sticking out on the top and the bottom and all four sides. You try to hold it away from yourself, but whenever you get tired and let your guard down, you get poked. You try to shift the weight, but it happens over and over again. And it's not just you, the people close to you keep getting hurt. Can you imagine yourself free from anger and the contempt that always accompanies it? No more outbursts, 
Never again feeling like your head's going to explode. No sleepless nights spent fuming. No relationships alienated. Instead, honesty, openness, reconciliation. That's what life as God's person in God's kingdom with God's people looks like. It's the life Jesus pictured for us, the life he lived. Next, it's a life free from out-of-control sexual desire. Jesus pictures that in the sermon from chapter 5, 27 through 33. Imagine what our nation would be like if we were free from anger and out-of-control sexual desire. You wouldn't even recognize it. The divorce rate would plummet. The, the hashtag MeToo movement could happily return to other things. Marriages would thrive. Girls would be safe. Compare that to what we have now. People who sell fuel for igniting sexual desire and then hypocritically deny responsibility for the blaze. Relationships that are ripped apart by lust. A divorce rate for Christians that's the same as that for non-Christians, about 50% overall. But Jesus showed us a life where women don't have to be afraid and will not be used to to satisfy selfish desires. A world governed by mutual respect where marriages are models of faithfulness and contentment. That's what life as God's person in God's kingdom with God's people is like. Or it can be. Next, Jesus pictures a life that's free of deceit and manipulation. And that's possible once uncontrolled anger and sexual desire are removed. This is chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. And the life Jesus pictured, people do what's right rather than talk as if they did. They refuse to use words to manage what people think of them or to manipulate people into giving them what they want. They don't stretch the truth. They don't promise to, to give what they don't intend to give. They're not constantly spinning everything because they don't need to. The life Jesus pictured is one in which family and friends trust a person completely because his or her word is gold. Does that sound good to you? It's a life, and this is chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, that's free of resentment. How many people I have known who have been poisoned by the bitter fruit of resentment. Siblings who don't speak, former employees who just burn with rage, children who don't go a day without remembering the betrayal of a parent, even though that parent's been dead for years. To simply be free, free of resentment and its bitterness. Jesus pictured a life in which that is possible. He pictures a life in which that is normal. To put it briefly, which he does at the end of chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, it's a life where love, love for God and for people, washes out anger and uncontrolled sexual desire and deceit and manipulation and resentment. Imagine a, a barrel that's filled with insects and worms and snakes and algae and filth and Poured on top of all that are toxic chemicals. And now imagine that someone starts pouring clean water into that barrel. 
gallons, hundreds of gallons, and then thousands of gallons. The filth and the algae and the snakes and the worms and the bugs and the toxic chemicals start to overflow the barrel. It takes time, but as the water keeps pouring, sooner or later all the ugly, dangerous stuff is washed out. That's what the love of God does in the life of his people. The life of as God's person, in God's kingdom, with God's people, is more than anything else a life of love. And just as contempt accompanies anger, you always find them together, joy accompanies love. It's a life that gets better and better. As those changes progressively happen, it gets better right until we move from this world to the next. In chapter 6 and 7, Jesus goes on to fill in the picture. I'll just mention a few things. He mentions that this is a life of genuine confidence in God. It's a life lived before him and of generosity towards others. That's chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. And it's a life that's free of worry, chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, which explains the generosity. What keeps some people, and especially Christian people, from generosity is worry. Remove worry. Worry that you're not going to have enough time or money or enough love or respect. And people are suddenly free to be generous with their time and their money and their love and their respect. Can you envision your life without worry? Jesus could, and he envisioned it for us, and he also lived it. Thirteen times Jesus tells people not to worry or be afraid. And the reason people listened, I mean, I've told people, don't worry, and they never listen to me. I don't know why I say it. Don't worry, they don't listen. But when Jesus said, they listened. And you know why? Because he lived it. He showed them it's possible. He lived a beautiful, unhurried life, free of anxiety. How'd you like to live that way? Or live without resentment or anger? What would your life be like if you were confident, nothing to hide, free of anger, genuinely wanting the best for the people around you, even the ones who, who don't like you, who've hurt you? If you think, well, who wouldn't like that? Of course I would like that, but it's not possible. Not for me, anyways. I've tried then I respectfully disagree with you. I believe you're wrong and Jesus is right. It is possible. You can have that life. You can be a person who's not just forgiven, but who is free. Free. Think of it. Free of anger. Free of out-of-control sexual desire. Free of de deceit. No more hiding. Free from resentment, worry, content and joyful and deeply connected to God and other people. That's the life. But to have it, you must live with the vision. You, you must learn about it. You must hunger for it. 
like it was food, thirst for it like it was drink. You must come to feel it, want it, daydream about it. It's real, it's possible. If you miss it, it will not be because it wasn't there, but because you didn't go after it. Now, I said at the beginning of this message that three elements must be in place for genuine and lasting change to occur. The first is this vision of a better life. We must live with that vision, desire it, daydream about it, feel it. That's the first element, the first step towards lasting, positive change. But it isn't the only step. There are two other principal elements, but we'll look at those next time. We'll start to look at those next time. Now, I've introduced, and that's all I've done, just introduced you to Jesus' vision of life as God's person in God's kingdom with God's people. If God's spirit has illuminated any of that vision, if when I was speaking you felt a pang of desire, a, a longing, a wistful hope, then receive that as an invitation from God to embrace the vision, to open the door to say, God, a life free of anger? I want that. That's where to start. Stay with the vision of you, free of anger, free of lust, free of resentment, you filled with contentment, confidence, and joy. All right, let's bow our heads, and I'm going to ask you, if you'll just take a moment and talk to God about this. If there's something there that you say, oh, God, I want that, would you tell him that? Would you ask him to to open the eyes of your heart and increase your vision for it? Amen, Lord, bring it to pass. May Jesus see the travail of his soul in us and be satisfied. Amen.